is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, found on page 977 of the Pew Bibles. Hear the for the from the book that we love. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from the worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it in all earnestness. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy, the author outlines how Russian operatives use certain online tactics to sow division and distrust within American society leading up to the 2020 election. What these operatives aimed to do was to exploit existing fractures already in American society, undermine trust in institutions, and blur the lines between reality and fiction. And so what they did is they focused on fostering disgust, and portraying others as untrustworthy and inherently dangerous. So this strategy contributed to a growing sense of alienation among Americans. And traditionally, if you think about politics traditionally, traditionally politics involved changing someone's mind and persuading them to your side. But now that's shifted. Now what politics is more about is protecting one's own group and demonizing others. We live in a very divided society. And I think that you feel that. I think you already know that too, is true. And we divide over tons of things, not just who we vote for, but sexuality, immigration, race, environmental care, health care. And even some years ago, we all were divided on whether this dress is blue and black, or white and gold. Now, just out of curiosity, who sees blue and black? Who sees white and gold? Yeah, so the first, yeah, so half of you are absolutely right, and the other half are absolutely wrong. It is blue and black. We can't even get this right. Remember that on social media, we fought about this forever? You t show your friends what color do you think this is? Skeptics are non-Christians. If you're here today, you might say, well, look, the church isn't much different. The church fights about everything. You might point out that, the, look at all the churches that we have. Look at all the denominations we have. Look at how online Christians smear other Christians who disagree with them on seemingly unimportant things. And honestly, I think you'd be right in that critique in many ways. But as the body of Christ, the church, 
We're called to be more united, not less. But unity, as we talk about today, is easier said than done, especially in our extremely divided society. So we're continuing our series in Ephesians today, and we now turn to the second half of Paul's letter, which is application of the theology he laid out in chapters 1 through 3. So 4 through 6 are more application-oriented based on what he already laid out in chapters 1 through 3. So last week, we saw in chapter 3, Paul discusses the centrality of the church. And Paul now moves to giving us the standards of the church, the body of Christ. So this week, we're going to talk about the first of the two standards he lays out. We're going to talk about unity, and next week, we're going to talk about the second of the two, which is purity. Unity and purity. Today, we'll talk about unity. And that's why there's a part one, because there's going to be a part two next week. The church, the body of Christ, is called to be different. We're called to show the world how to be the world. But a main part of that mission, of that goal, is to show a divided world how to be a united one by the unity that we show each other as Christians. Jesus says something like this in John chapter 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have all the right theology. No. If you worship a certain way. No. If you're part of this church and not that one. No. He says, you know how people are going to know that we are his disciples? If you have love for one another. So Jesus thinks this is really important. Jesus spends all of John 17 really praying for the unity of his church. And so in Ephesians, the phrase that Paul uses for the church is the body of Christ. And we're talking about, again, we're talking about the church, capital C church, which is all Christians of all times and places, not necessarily the local church. But we talked about last week, the local church, like Liberty Northeast, is a microcosm of the capital C church. So today, what I want us to see is that as the body of Christ, we need to see unity with other Christians as vital to our mission to the world. And so I'm going to answer three questions today. The first is, what does unity in the body of Christ actually accomplish? Secondly, what does unity within the body of Christ look like? And thirdly, what's required for unity in the body of Christ? So what does it accomplish? What does unity accomplish? What does it look like? And then what's required for unity. So first, what does unity in the body of Christ accomplish? Unity in the body of Christ accomplishes two things. First, it reflects the unity of God. Secondly, it makes Christ available to the world. So look at Ephesians 4.1. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, young people, do you know what an NPC is? Right? A non-character player in a video game? All right, you might have to explain it to your parents later, right? But for now, just roll with me. They're, they're like extras in a movie, right? They're, but they're actually really funny and they're notorious because a lot of times they're a little bit of unintentional comedy to your game experience when they go rogue, 
right? Some are kind of stuck in this loop, right? You might think about some video game characters who, like, they walk into a wall and they just, like, keep walking into the wall and they never turn around, or they walk backwards into a pit. When these go rogue, they get off track of what the game is supposed to be about. Paul is saying, while I'm imprisoned, don't go rogue like an NPC and get off track. He's saying instead, listen, stay on track. Stay on the road that God has called you to travel on as his people. So then jump down to verse 4. We'll come back to 2 through 3 later. Verse 4, we'll start to see that unity is a major way we stay on track. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Listen to the amount of times he says one. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The unity of the body of Christ reflects the unity of God. Christians believe in the triune God, one God in three persons, perfectly united, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul is saying here, there's one body of Christ. Why? Because there's one Spirit. There's one hope belonging to the Christian calling, one faith, one baptism. Why? Because there's one Lord, Christ. There's one Christian family embracing all. Why? Because there's one God the Father who is over all and through all and in all. And because of God's great love for us, just like you can't destroy the unity of God, God by his grace doesn't allow us to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. You can't destroy the unity of God no matter what you do. And you can't destroy the unity of the church no matter what you do. So John Stott summarizes this idea this way. He says, first, the one father creates the one family. Secondly, the one Lord, Jesus, creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. Thirdly, the one spirit creates the one body. So the one thing it accomplishes, the body, the body of Christ accomplishes, unity the body of Christ accomplishes, is that we reflect the unity of God, the triune God. The The other thing is that the one body of Christ makes Christ available to the world. So in the Bible, there are three ways, three types of the body of Christ. The first is Jesus' physical body, his historical body, right? His flesh and blood. That's Jesus' body. That's how it's used. But then you have his, what you would call his sacramental body, which is the bread of communion. That's his other body. And that's in 1 Corinthians 11. And lastly, as theologians would call it, you have Christ's ecclesiastical body. Ecclesiastical simply means the church. You have his church, which is his body. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. Now I have this slide on the screen Because in an intriguing, mysterious way, all three bodies of Christ actually work together. The first is that Christ makes himself available through communion to his church. In communion, Christ is making himself available to us. 
But Christ also makes himself available through his church to the world. In this way, all three bodies of Christ are interacting. They're working in this mysterious way. So that's why it's important that we, the ecclesiastical body of Christ, the church body of Christ, make every effort to maintain unity. Otherwise, we destroy our witness, which is the bottom half of this chart, our witness and mission to make Christ available to the world. If Christ makes himself available to us, and we don't evangelize, we don't disciple, we don't show mercy to others, it, that's where it stops. So we have to make sure that we are united so we continue to accomplish that goal. But then what does unity in the body look like? Look at verses 4 through 7, oh, sorry, 4, 7 through 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. For, for, uh, for time's sake, let's jump down to verse 11 through 12. Those other verses are about Christ's descent. You can listen to that sermon in the Apostles' Creed series. But look at verse 11. Look at the gifts he gives. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Unity involves a diversity of gifts. Any successful team has diversity. Just like a symphony needs various instruments to play different parts, a team benefits from a mix of talent and skills. It's kind of this harmonious blend of different strengths that creates a winning combination. So whether it's you're on the court or you're on the field or you're on the stage, we need the diversity of skills and of gifts to actually put this team out there. So uniformity might sound nice in theory, but it's actually, God doesn't call us to uniformity. He calls us to unity, and unity involves diversity, a diversity of gifts that truly makes our team, the body of Christ, shine. The same is true for Christ's body, the church. You need the diversity of gifts to shine. God has gifted us with diversity. Paul says here, when Christ ascended, he sent gifts to men in the form of leaders. Each leader mentioned here that Paul talks about is actually somehow connected to what we would call the ministry of teaching. They have some teaching role, but their approaches are diverse. Apostles, he talks about apostles. Apostles are eyewitnesses of Christ sent to preach to the world and set up the church. Prophets speak on behalf of God to the church. Evangelists share the gospel with non-Christians. Shepherds, or the, another word for that would be pastors, care for local congregations through preaching and sacraments. And teachers teach. They teach the Bible. God has gifted the church, the body of Christ, with leaders 
with diverse gifting to enrich the whole body of Christ. But the Holy Spirit also gives a body, gives Christ's body a diverse diversity in terms of spiritual gifts to all members of the body of Christ. So it's not just leaders who are gifts, but each of us gets gifts. Every Christian has spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit to enrich the church such as wisdom, the Bible says, knowledge, faith, administration, teaching, mercy, prophecy, speaking in tongues, all kinds of gifts. All of these make up the body. This diversity of gifts make up the body. So every part in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that every part of Christ's body with our spiritual gifts is needed and valued. How you're gifted is different than how I'm gifted. But you're still needed and you're still valued. You're valued and needed as much as I am, as much as a Christian in South America is. All of our gifts are gifts from the Holy Spirit to be used to enrich the body of Christ. And because of this, the body of Christ is also enriched with a diversity of traditions. Because we end up emphasizing different things, we have a diversity of traditions. Pentecostals and Anglicans, they enrich the body of Christ by their emphasis on beauty and worship in their own ways. They don't, you go to a Pentecostal church, you go to an Anglican church, they're going to look different, but the emphasis is very much the same as we desire beauty in our worship. Reformed Christians enrich the body of Christ by their reverence for God's word and their desire for knowledge and clarity through teaching. That's why, on average, I preach 37 minutes, not 10. Because we're Reformed, we believe in preaching God's word as, as vital and important. Baptist Christians, they enrich the body of Christ by their urgency to evangelize and baptize. And like leaving out an ingredient in your recipe, any missing gifts, either because we've pushed them away or because we hesitate to use them, will leave the body of Christ wanting. And it's through the diversity of gifts that God builds his church. Paul even, like, he, he seems to suggest this in 1 Corinthians 3. When he talks about it, he says, look, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And he says that, like, Apollos and I, we're, we're doing things differently, but we're together. In verse 9, he says, for we are God's fellow workers. Diversity enriches the body of Christ in a way uniformity can't. We need everyone's gift. We need your gift. We need my gift. We need the gifts of leaders that God has given the church, elders, deacons, pastors. That's going to enrich us in a way that uniformity just can't. Every person in the body of Christ, every congregation or tradition in the body of Christ has a distinct function is my brother and sister, the Bible says, 
is needed and valued and used by God for the flourishing of the whole body of Christ. And we're called to maintain unity despite our differences. Now, you might be asking, who are we required then to have unity with? Like, should we just say anybody who claims to be a Christian, we should have unity with them? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the next part of my sermon. Is that, look, we have some serious conflicts, right? If you know anything about churches and Christian tradition, there are serious conflicts. How do we actually handle those? Well, let me give you two unhelpful ways, and I'm going to give you what I believe to be one helpful way. The first way that this is handled is, our, is essentially say, look, is, is this idea like theological minimalism. Since like the 1980s, this has kind of been the, the move. So there was an influx of non-denominational churches, and there was this running claim that, look, theology, doctrine, that divides us. So you know what? Let's just find the lowest common denominator for unity. So Christian unity is basically boiled down to a sentence like this. Well, as long as we all believe in Jesus, we're on the same team. And frankly, I've, I've found myself in that camp. But I started to ask this question that never, was seemed, to be, never seemed to be answered. Okay, but what version of Jesus do we all believe in? For example... Someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't believe that Jesus is God but simply a good teacher and example, I believe in Jesus as a good teacher and a good example. Should I just have unity with them? Are they even a Christian? Are they even saved is a question for God to answer. But is that what God calls me to? To be united with people who don't even believe Jesus is God, but say they're Christians? Or believe Jesus is less of God than God the Father? Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, should I be united to them because they don't see Jesus as equally divine to the Father? We have to be careful that our attempts to enrich the body of Christ don't actually backfire on us and poison the body. Salt water in a cup looks like fresh water to our eyes. Not salt water like from the Jersey Shore. That would definitely not look the same as fresh water from your tap. But if you have clean fresh, wa- yeah, fresh water from your tap, fresh water, mix some salt in there, to your eyes, they'll look the same. But if you pour the salt water into your plants, what will happen to your plants? They'll die. So we have to draw some lines if we're going to protect the body of Christ from dying. And so the New Testament does encourage us to draw lines but through a few examples. 1 Timothy 1, 19-20, Paul actually names two teachers. He said, I handed them over to Satan. It's like, they're not united with us anymore. They're on Satan's team. Could you imagine if I came up here and like just start calling people out and said they were on Satan's team? I don't know. Maybe I'll think about that for a future sermon. Titus 1, 13-14 Paul actually tells Titus to publicly rebuke false teachers in his church. 1 Timothy 6.5, he calls out teachers who are preaching false doctrine for financial gain. 
So existence of false doctrine must mean that there's true doctrine, so we cannot and should not seek unity with everyone who claims to be a Christian because some are poisoning the body and will destroy all of us with them. Instead, we need to call them to repentance and receive them back when they do. But until that point, we need to distance ourselves from them. And listen, the impulse of theological minimalism is a good one. Scripture consistently pushes us for more unity, not less. But theological minimalism often reduces the gospel to being nice. I'm just being nice to everybody. We're never going to talk about our differences and you believe this and I believe that. We're just going to kind of keep those at bay and we're all just going to, you know, be nice to each other. But unity that's just about being nice isn't really unity at all because it's often that we're nice to one group at the expense of the whole. So 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. Now imagine me preaching a sermon like this where Paul says, he names two teachers who are te- whose teaching is actually, he says, is spreading like gangrene. Now, if you don't know what gangrene is, I wasn't exactly sure, so I Googled it. And this is what Google told me. Gangrene is dead tissue caused by an infection or lack of blood flow. Left untreated, it will spread to other tissues and organs. So in the ancient world, like Paul's world, what happened, the patient needed the infected part before antibiotics. What they would do if you had an infected part of your body, like your foot, <coughs> excuse me, or your leg got gangrene, what they would do? Amputate it. They would cut it off. False teaching, Paul says, can't be left untreated. It has to be cut off or it will spread to the whole body. So theological minimalism, that's where it fails. It lets gangrene grow instead of cutting it off. But the other one is theological maximalism, which seeks to correct theological minimalism, but errs in the opposite direction. It makes the bar for unity so high. Christians can only have fellowship with other Christians in their same congregation or denomination or tradition. It makes prefer- What it does, too, is it takes preferences and convictions, and it makes it core, them core issues. For instance, your view of the end times is of equal importance to your, the, your view of the divinity of Christ. How you read Genesis 1 is equal to how you view the resurrection. That's theological maximalism, but that makes unity impossible because, like, for instance, Baptists could never have fellowship with Anglicans because they disagree on liturgy, on how to worship. Pentecostals could never evangelize side by side with Presbyterians because they disagree on speaking in tongues. Do you see how that actually hurts our mission? The impulse is good on some level. We do need standards. We absolutely need standards. But in that, there's no diversity. Rather than amputating the infected parts, we cut off the healthy ones too. Martin Luther said this, Softness and hardness are the two main faults from which all the mistakes of pastors come. So both theological minimalism, which is softness, and theological maximalism, hardness, are detrimental to the body of Christ. 
And I want you just to, like, to ask yourself this question. Which are you more likely to embrace? We all have a gut impulse. I'm just going to be nice to everybody. Or I'm going to make the bar so high, no one can ever get above it. Unity is important. It's essential to the church's mission and witness as it makes Christ available to the world. We can't set the bar so low that we allow false teaching to spread and kill, but we can't set it so high that we destroy unity and diversity before it even starts. So the one way I think is actually healthy is what they call theological triage. What's triage? This comes from Gavin Ortland. He writes a book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. He says, theological triage is a system of prioritization, and it's often used in medical contexts. For instance, if you're a doctor on the battlefield, you cannot treat every wounded soldier simultaneously. You must develop a process to determine which injuries should you treat first. So how does this apply to unity? Well, it gives us a framework to determine what are the essential doctrines we need to keep and we can't be flexible on, and what are ones we can be flexible on. And by this, we won't permit false teaching, but we also will be able to preserve unity and diversity with other Christians. So what Gavin Ortland does, he says, here's four ranks, okay, four doctrinal ranks. And I think I have all those will be on the screen. First-ranked doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. These are the things we cannot be flexible on, things that are essential to the gospel itself. So he would say the Apostles' Creed, and th things like the Apostles' Creed and justification by faith alone. Those are a couple things he would say, hey, these are so essential to the gospel, we can't be flexible on these things. He would then say second-ranked doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church. But these are doctrines that oftentimes means we have to separate ourselves, right? Anglicans and Baptists probably aren't going to be worshiping together unless you come to Liberty Church. You're probably going to be worshiping in the Anglican church or a Baptist church. And that's okay on some level. But it, and so second-rank doctrine says, hey, those things are important, but we're not going to divide over them in terms of ministry and mission as a whole. So he would say things like mode of baptism. Do we sprinkle, pour, dunk? Which one do we do? Do we then say, oh, we here, we pour, but over there they dunk, so we're not going to be working with them. We, we might laugh, but this is true. It's what happens. Speaking in tongues, he would say, or even roles of women in ministry. Do you have female deacons or not? These are questions people ask but we shouldn't divide as a, as a whole over this. Then he say third-ranked doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify any separation or division. So he would say, like, your views of the millennia, the millennium in Revelation 20, is it a literal thousand years? Is it, you know, uh, does it happen, like, is it currently happening? Is it going to happen in the future? Whatever that is, he would say, look, let's not divide over that. And I think that's, this is good advice. Or he would say even... What Genesis 1, do we read that literally? Or is it figurative? Regardless, we shouldn't divide over those things. Never divide over those. 
And then he says fourth-rank doctrines are unimportant to the gospel witness and ministry collaboration, like the color of your carpet at your church or whether you choose to spell liberty with an I or a Y at the end. Like, doesn't, like we, might, we spell with an I, another church might spell with a Y at the end. We're not going to divide over that at all. It's completely unimportant. Theological triage, what it does, it takes time, but it gives us a standard for unity while honoring the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ. So then what's required for unity in the body of Christ? How do we actually do this? Paul says, first, be charitable. Look, jump back to verse 2 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Charitable Christians don't divide over petty differences. They're humble, gentle, patient, loving, and are eager to maintain unity, excuse me, eager to maintain unity with other Christians. Because they're charitable like Christ was charitable to them. Jesus in his self-sacrificial death on the cross for undeserving sinners like us showed us the greatest act of charitableness. Jesus was charitable to you so you can be charitable towards others. Jesus took your place on the cross so you can put things like pettiness aside. Because of Christ's perfect charitableness, we're freed to be charitable towards other Christians. If I come to terms with the fact that because of sin, we're all in the same boat of sin and death, and we all needed the same Savior, I can then be charitable towards other brothers and sisters in Christ who received the same forgiveness that I did, who needed the same forgiveness I did. So we need to be charitable. We also need to grow in maturity. Look at verses 13 through 16 real quick. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The spiritually immature easily divide over petty things, and the spiritually immature are also easily distracted. Like my dog. Easily distracted. It would be foolish for me to put him in charge of anything. He's cute, don't get me wrong, but he's a mess. Spiritually immature people, what they do is they change their views of other Christians simply by a rumor they heard. Or they had an awkward interaction on Sunday with someone. So, you know, I never have a bad day, so how dare they have a bad day? So I can't be friends with them, and I can't fellowship with them in any way because they had a bad day when I never do. 
or they watch a video about a denomination or a tradition and they, on YouTube and they immediately go, you know, I can't ever fellowship with those people. Rather, what mature Christians do, mature Christians are discerning. They don't have an insatiable thirst for controversy. They're able to distinguish between the ranks in theological triage. They hear out other Christians who have different convictions and preferences without compromising on the core teachings of Scripture. Mature Christians listen first, speak second, and aren't easily angered or irritated. Charitableness and spiritual maturity help unity. If Jesus makes himself available to the world through his body, his church, imagine how powerful a witness it would be if the world experienced a global church that was unified around first-ranked doctrines but wasn't petty about second, third, and fourth-ranked ones. Imagine how powerful we could be as the church. Think about how life-giving Liberty Northeast would be if everyone here was seeking to be more charitable to each other and to encourage each other to grow in maturity. What a powerful witness to a divided society. So here's my challenge to you in terms of unity is start with unity at home because this is a big task. So we need to start at home before we expand to the world. So literally, start at home with your family. I've observed this. I don't know if this is true. I don't have any stats to back this up. But the divisive parents generally produce divisive children. So for the sake of the body of Christ, you got to nip that in the bud. Be charitable towards other Christians and their beliefs in front of your kids. Especially if kids go to Christian school and the school maybe is different than what you would teach at church or here at church. They say, hey, I heard this. Be like, oh, that's really interesting. And invite them to, hey, let's discern this together. Let's compare that to Scripture. What do you think Scripture says? And not just parts, not just like a verse or two, but actually what does all of Scripture say about this topic? So start at home, but also your home church here. Are you eager to maintain unity with people here at Liberty Northeast? Who here, is there anybody here you need to have like a loving conversation with? You had one of those awkward interactions and you haven't been able to let it go, so you need to actually talk to them. Is there anybody you need to ask forgiveness from or give forgiveness to? Is there anybody here you're like, you know what, I just need to give them the benefit of doubt. Just need to give them the benefit of doubt. Where do you need to put aside your own interests for the sake of congregational unity? And lastly, then the global church with other Christians. Take, take some time and self-reflect. Identify if you're more likely to be a theological minimalist, where the bar is really low, or a theological maximalist, which is really high. And I encourage you, move to theological triage. If you can't remember what that is, go back on YouTube, screenshot that, pic, that slide, and go from there, or you can email me or text me, and I'll send it to you. But then repent when you discover that your attitude towards other Christians is actually divisive. Repent of that. Whenever that happens. And pray. Could you do this? Could you pray for the flourishing of other churches? Like churches that you maybe had, you know, you know they're your brothers and sisters, you want to go to that church, but you love them and you care for them, and maybe even your heart doesn't want to pray for them? Pray for them. Pray for those churches. Pray for those other traditions. Pray for other Christians across the world. Look, Christian unity is extremely important. It's talked about here. It's talked about John 17. Our witness, though, is on the line. 
Our unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ is necessary. So my encouragement and challenge to you would be, let's be eager to maintain unity for the health of the body of Christ and for our witness to the world. Let's pray.